um, was just thinking of some of the songs that we were singing, and any one of those songs that we sang this morning uh, would, uh, would fit in a particular way with where we're going to be in Exodus this, uh, this morning. But in that last hymn that we just sang, Pure in Heart, O God, that uh, the third verse, Pure in Heart, O God, help me to be until thy holy face one day I see, reminded me of uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they not will go to heaven, although that's gloriously true. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That is the reward. He is. And I was struck by that because of where we are this morning in Exodus, looking at the first of the Ten Commandments and realizing how something so simple that God is my joy, my life, my reward is so easily corrupted by my weak, fragile heart. So here's what uh, we are going to do. We are actually going to do a message on each of the Ten Commandments, which means that today we're going to be looking at commandment number one. One of the reasons that we're going to, well, two reasons we're going to do that. One, and this is more of a minor issue, uh, we are not going to spend an inordinate amount of time on some of the other laws that come in, say, around chapter 21 and 22 that talk about personal injuries and property rights. We won't spend a whole lot of time when we get further into, um, into Exodus on the particulars of the tabernacle, although we will preach the tabernacle because the tabernacle will preach, okay? Uh, contrary to popular opinion. Uh, we, we are, we're going to fly over some of those passages, but because the Ten Commandments, as they stand, so well embody and synthesize all that the law has to say, it seems worthwhile to slow down and to spend some time here in this passage. It was not so long ago that, uh, that if, if you were any sort of a serious, committed Christian, uh, you just assumed that you knew the Ten Commandments, that you, that you could recite them. In fact, uh, I, I wish I could remember the date. Uh, there was a, uh, a gentleman, one of those old dead guys, who was writing about the sad state of affairs in pastoral ministry at the time that, uh, that God started to do a, a new work. And one of the things that he cited as an example of how poor the pastoring and the preaching was at that particular day and time was that X number of pastors could not tell you what the Ten Commandments were. They could not recite all ten. It was just a given. That was, that was basic Christianity 101 to know the Ten Commandments. All right, so I'm, I'm not going to poll the congregation and ask who at this moment could stand up and recite all ten. All right. Here's what I will do, though, and this is particularly for those of, uh, those of you uh, who are family sitting here, since we have uh, some of our younger children in here. My understanding, if I was told wrong, I apologize, my understanding is that our Sparks, which is K-5, first, K first and second, uh, have actually been going over the Ten Commandments. They're memorizing the Ten Commandments with hand signs and stuff like that that help them memorize. All right, so kids, here's what I'm going to tell you. If you're within the sound of my voice, 
uh, either here this morning on live stream, you're hearing the audio later uh, because mom and dad always play the sermons back in the car when you're riding to school, right? Uh, if, if you're hearing this, here's what you need to do. If you can get one of your parents to recite the Ten Commandments to one of the elders here at the church, me, JT, Andy, Terry Hathaway, Banks Carroll, Alan Adams, Mike Maldonado, am I missing anyone? That should be seven, right? Okay? Mr. JT and Mr. Andy will give you a gift card to, uh, to Dairy Queen, all right? That way you and your parents can go to Dairy Queen and can enjoy some ice cream, all right? That JT's smiling, of course I will. Because the law of the Lord is sweet to the taste, sweeter than ice cream and the drippings of the ice cream cone, to paraphrase Psalm 19. So there it is. Now, parents, you know what's going to happen now. If your kids are here and they've heard this, you're done. If you don't memorize the Ten Commandments, you are not going to be able to rest. So enjoy that one. Okay. In all seriousness, though, let's turn our attention to God's Word. I want to thank both Mike Maldonado and JT. Uh, Mike filled in for me last week while I was out uh, enjoying a break. He filled in for me during the Sunday school hour in our Ephesians study uh, and did a great job. JT filled in uh, for the preaching of uh, Exodus 19 and did a good job. If you did not hear that sermon, you ought to go back and listen to it. You can find it on our website under the edgewoodga.com under the media button. Also, small little uh, pro tip here, you can find our sermon audio on Apple Podcasts and on Google Podcasts. So if you did not know that, uh, who's the other guy that everyone likes to listen to? Uh, uh, Jay Pipper or something like that? John Piper, that's who it is. Yeah, John Piper. Put that guy out and bring, bring us in. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You will have no other gods before me. Before we pray, let me, let me say to, to you who are here, and or listening, how I've been praying for you as we've approached this Sunday and in the Sundays to come as we work our way through the Ten Commandments. If you are here and you have not had your new birth through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, you are outside the grace of God because of your sin and rebellion. Here's how I've been praying for you this week. I have prayed that God would do one of the kindest things that he could do for you, that is to reveal to you that you are a sinner deserving his judgment. But, that because he is a gracious and forgiving God, that as your heart is laid bare to your disobedience and your rebellion, to the righteous commands of God, that you would be able to hear the call of Jesus Christ to say, if you turn and repent and believe and put your trust in me, you can be forgiven and all will be made new. That's what I've been praying for you. 
if you're a Christian, here is how I've been praying for you. I'm assuming that most of the people in this room are Christians, are believers. I've been praying that as we go through the Ten Commandments, that you, along with me, would be reminded of how utterly helpless we are apart from Jesus Christ. That it is not because of any attempted obedience that we can offer up that we are accepted by God, but it is only the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ that counts for us. And that it is by the gift of His Holy Spirit that we are given the ability to do what we could not do before, and that is to obey from the heart. I hope that as you are reminded of your desperate need for Christ, that you are quickly turned to rejoice in what Christ has given you. So bow with me in prayer. Father, would you do what only you can do to our hearts? What cannot be seen by the human eye, would you work transformation to those who sit under the teaching and the preaching of your word as they hear that these are your words given to them for their good, for their life, for their benefit, for their blessing? Father, according to the riches of your mercy, would you bring conviction, the realization of guilt to those who are standing against your will and your way so that they would be able to find forgiveness and pardon through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, for those of us who have been graciously brought into fellowship with you, would you help us to remember, guard our hearts, Father, we ask, so that we would not think that anything that we have, we have because of ourselves, but that all of it is a credit and a testimony to your goodness and your providential care for your people. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. Let me say something a few things briefly before we actually get to the command, and that is by way of setup, not just for the first commandment, but for all the commandments. And let me start at verse 2, Exodus 20, verse 2. Three things that we want to say that pertain in a, in, a, in a larger sense to the law, but particularly to the Ten Commandments and the law that God gives by way of moral instruction. Number one, this is something we need to keep at the forefront of our minds, and it's something that we mentioned a week or two ago, or within the last two weeks, actually, in various ways, but we're going to stress it again because of how easily we forget. Number one, the law is founded on God's gracious redemption. Once again, God redeems a people, and then he instructs a people. It is not our obedience to the law of God that brings about our redemption or that makes us worthy of being redeemed. One of the ways that this demonstrates itself or that this is evident in the book of Exodus, J.T. stressed last week over and over again about how one of the themes of, uh, of Exodus 19 was that God came down he condescended to meet with his people, to speak with them, to let them know something about his holiness. 
God came down. Those words are actually used on the mountain. But the first time that that phrasing is used is all the way back in Exodus 3 when Moses has his first encounter with God. God himself says, I have come down to deliver them, that is Israel, from the power of the Egyptians. He comes down to deliver and save, and after he has delivered and saved, then he comes down to give them his law. In that sense, then, one of the things that we always want to keep at the forefront of our minds is that obedience is essential to the Christian life, but obedience is a grateful response on the part of God's people to what God has already done for them. God gives us life, and we, in return, live out that life as He has designed it and as He has given it to us. So the law is not meant to be burdensome. It's not meant to be something that we shy away from. It is seen to be an extension of God's grace and mercy in redeeming and rescuing a people, and now He has gone an extra step to reveal to them how life is going to be lived maximally in his presence. No one else has that privilege except for God's people. Number two, for all of the emphasis that we like to put, and, and I understand where this comes in, there's a little bit of a, of a, a tension that runs, especially in Paul's letters in the New Testament, but for all the attention that we put on the law as being external, or dealing with works and not really dealing with the heart of the matter, that is an oversimplification of what the law is in its nature. So let me state it succinctly. Number two, the, the observation is that the law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. It is not merely about external performance. The law does address things like our words and our works, but it also reaches into the heart and the volition and the mind. So David in Psalm 19 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And even here in the Ten Commandments, one of the things that's very interesting about the way this is, this is laid out, the first and the last commandment, commandment number one and commandment number ten, actually, you can violate that commandment and no one would know that you're breaking commandment number one or commandment number ten. Because it ultimately deals with the condition of the heart. It's not mere formalism, which we'll see in just a moment. And then number three, and this will lead us into our discussion of the first commandment, number three, particularly when it comes to the law's moral instruction, we ought to remember that the law in its moral instruction is double-sided. That is to say, it both proscribes and prescribes. Proscribe, that's when you forbid something. Every commandment that forbids one course of action... There is a corresponding action later in the law that says what you ought to do in its place. And vice versa. If the law is given positively, here's what you ought to do. Well, the law later will also tell you what you ought not to do. So, for example, 
the commandment that we'll get to in several weeks, you will not murder. If I'm sitting on the beach and I see someone 20, 30 feet out from the shoreline and they're drowning, and I sit and I watch until they go down and never come up again, I did not murder that person, did I? Have I fulfilled the law by not murdering that drowning individual? No. Because the law is going to make it clear that what murder is is an action that you should not do, but while you're not doing murder, here's what you should be doing in its place. So that brings us into the first commandment. Notice that the first commandment is stated negatively. It proscribes. It tells us what we are not to do. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's just make a quick point of clarification here. Depending on how your version reads, you may read this verse as something like, you shall have no other gods before me, or it may say something like, you shall have no other god besides me. And some of your Bibles may try to split the difference and give one word, but then give you a little note in the margin that said, or you could read it this way. All right, you, you know what the difference is between the two? If you say, you shall have no other god before me, the implication could be, as long as I'm the number one God, you can have other gods. Just make sure I'm always at the top of the order. That's not putting another God before me. If the command is, you shall have no other God besides me, that means that there's only one God that you can have. Now, the, the phrasing here could be translated either way, but just to clarify things, this is why it's good to read the Bible in chunks, right? Not just in singular verses, because later on we'll hear the Lord say this to Israel. You don't need to turn there. Let me just do this briefly. In Exodus twenty-two twenty, the Lord says, He who sacrifices to any God other than to the Lord alone will be utterly destroyed. Exodus 23, 13, do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. And later in Exodus 34, you will not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. So whether you read this, you will have no other god besides me, or you will have no other god before me, the Lord makes it abundantly clear as you continue to work through that what he's talking about is, I am the only god that you can have, and I'm the only god that you can devote yourself to. There is no lesser god that gets brought in on this relationship. Why does Israel need this kind of a command? Israel just saw, just three months ago, God demonstrate clearly, beyond any doubt, the fact that He, and He alone, is God. He executed judgment on all the so-called gods of Egypt. He did miracles that no one else could do. He parted the water and allowed His people to walk across on dry land. He closed the water over their enemies and destroyed them. Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. No one is like God. Why do they need a command like this? 
And the answer is pretty simple. One, because this is just the world that they live in. And two, they're products of their environment. It's very interesting, later on in the Old Testament, in Joshua chapter 24, when Joshua is about to pass from the scene, and he knows now that with Israel in the land, things are going to become a lot more complicated. There's no central leader like there was with Moses or like there was with Joshua. Joshua says to the people, as he's encouraging them before he leaves, to put away the gods your fathers served beyond the river, he's talking about the Euphrates, and in Egypt. In other words, what Joshua is saying is, your fathers beyond the river and Euphrates, that's a reference to Abraham. Earlier in the chapter, Joshua says, when God called Abraham out from beyond the Euphrates, he and his family were worshiping other gods. When Israel comes out of Egypt, they have to be told, put away the gods of Egypt. This is just what the human heart does. It looks for and it creates and it manufactures little gods that can be managed, that can give you reasonable expectations, that can be controlled, that can be explained. And God's people from beginning to end, whether you look at the beginning with Abraham or you look at the beginning of the people as they're brought out of Egypt, these people are tainted with polytheism. There are gods all over the place in the world in which they live. And the land that they're going to is populated with people who worship all kinds of gods. Therefore, God says, you are not going to be like any of them. You are mine. I have brought you to myself. I have given myself to you. You are to worship me and me only. You think the, the situation, the scenario, the environment is so much different then than what it is today? Right, sort of the, the, the haughty pride and arrogance of presentism, right? Our present day is always better than the old days because they were just so ignorant. They were so unsophisticated. They're just not as advanced as what we are. Look, look at these crazy people worshiping spirits everywhere, making these little gods that they're going to carry around because they think that this god or that god is going to give them this, that, or the other. You think we're any different today? What, if, what is a god? It's interesting. One of the things that God says in the preface to the Ten Commandments Verse 2, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I'm the one who freed you and gave you new life. That could be one way to define a God. A God is someone or something that you believe gives to you life. 
Let's, let's give it in two parts. A God is anything that you believe gives you life and gives you happiness. Something that gives you life. Something that gives your life meaning or purpose or direction. Life. Happiness. Whatever it is that gives you rest or comfort or satisfaction. If you define God that way as whatever you go to to find life and happiness, this world is filled with modern-day gods. Not that you need the help, but let me give you some of the so-called gods that exist today. Marriage can be a God. A husband or a wife. A boyfriend or a girlfriend. Family can be a God. Your children or your grandchildren. Your career can be a God. Money can be a God. Reputation, food, leisure, strength, physical health, knowledge, beauty, gadgets, yourself. Wherever you go to find life and happiness, that is by definition a God to you. How are we doing with the first commandment so far? You say, but wait a minute, Merritt, that's not fair. Because all of these things, many of the things that you just listed off as examples are things that God himself, I've been told at least, has given to me. So God is giving me so-called gods because he just wants to trip me up? He wants to make life difficult? No. No. Here's the problem. The things that the Lord gives to his people by way of gifts and blessings, even those gifts and blessings are given to his people so that we can direct ourselves back to him. It's as simple as I know how to say it. All things are from him and through him and to him. You take any of the gifts that God has given you, and if you are not able to articulate, if you are not able to see and to know in your heart, in your mind, how this gift, how your marriage, or how your family, or your job, or your health, or whatever it is, if you're not able to recognize that this thing, this gift that God has given you, is directing you back to joy and happiness with Him, you have made that thing a God in your life. And the very first commandment says, you can't do that. I'm enough. I fill everything up. You ought not to go around looking for lesser things. 
I give you gifts and blessings, not so that you can be enamored by them or get tied up in them as good as what these gifts are. I give you these good gifts so that you can be more enamored with me. So that you can sing and mean it. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. So that you can sing and mean it. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. You, my inheritance, now and always. But our hearts are weak, and they are fickle, and they are easily distracted. We chase after lesser things. We take what are good things, and we make them ultimate things. And there is only one ultimate being, and that is God. I was undone. this week going through this commandment. So many little gods. Things that ought to be used to further and enhance my enjoyment become a distraction and become a God, becomes a God in and of itself. Listen to this description, this is one of the things that undid me. So because I want you to suffer along with me, because God is good and kind to wound us and then to heal us up again, let me share this with you. Another old dead guy, third or fourth century, is talking about the dilemma, the difficulty it is for God's people to recognize that even things that we can enjoy ought to be used to further our enjoyment of God, not to end in the enjoyment of that thing in and of itself. So he gives an illustration. Let me read it to you. He says this. Suppose we were wanderers in a strange country and could not live happily away from our fatherland and that we felt wretched in our wandering. And wishing to put an end to our misery, we determined to return home. We find, however, that we must make use of some mode of conveyance, either by land or water, in order to reach that fatherland where our enjoyment is to commence. But the beauty of the country through which we pass and the very pleasure of the motion charm our hearts. And turning these things, which we ought to use, into objects of enjoyment, we become unwilling to hasten the end of our journey. And becoming engrossed in artificial delight, our thoughts are diverted from that home whose delights would make us truly happy. Such is a picture of our condition in this life of mortality. we become unwilling to hasten the end of our journey. Evidence of the fact that my heart worships other things, other people, 
other goods instead of worshiping God alone is proven by the fact that I am so comfortable in this life. It does not matter to me that I am missing God's presence in perfect joy. I don't want to hurry this life along. I got plenty of things to worship here. I got plenty of things to fill my time. The very fact that I cling to this life so selfishly is itself an indication that my eyes are not on the eternal joy that is offered to me in the presence of God, but that my eyes are set and fixed on so many lesser, trivial things. So that's what the first commandment proscribes, what it says we ought not to do. You ought not, you must not worship any other gods. Let's frame it positively. Everything the law forbids, it has a corresponding command, something that we're to observe. If you were to put this command in a positive light, you could not do much better than what we have in Deuteronomy 6.5. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That's what it means not to worship other gods. It means that you have no room in your heart for another god. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Is there anyone here Anyone who says that they've done that? Anyone here who can say, I have loved God to the point that it is impossible for my heart to love Him more? Even for a moment, Who can do this? My heart doesn't have that kind of strength and capacity. Even if I could do it for a moment, for a split second, for a fraction of a moment, even if I could do it for a split second, that's not the fulfillment of the command. The command is telling you this is what your entire life is supposed to be like. I can't do loving the Lord with all my heart for a fraction of a second. How, God help me, am I going to do it for a lifetime? So I find that the law, the instruction, the word that the Lord gave to me, rather than producing life, became death.
the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But I'm fleshly and I'm a sinner. I want to obey. Even the wanting to obey is all of God's grace because he's given me a heart that wants to do what I formerly did not want to do. The desire is there, intermittently, fleeting, but the ability never is. What are we going to do? God is right to say, you will have no other gods except me. The problem is not with the command, the problem is with me, the problem is with you. Romans 8, 1 through 4. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh, God did. God did it for you. How? What the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. I can't keep the first commandment, but I know who did. Jesus. Jesus kept the first commandment, and he did it for me. Jesus kept the first commandment, and if you're one of his, he did it for you. Jesus did what we could not do, and then as an overflow of his goodness and grace to us, he gives to us his Holy Spirit that takes dead hearts and makes them alive again, and takes hearts that were in rebellion against him, who had no desire to chase after God, who had no desire to worship him, and he makes their hearts long for God. Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And by his spirit now, we look at commandment number one. You will have no other gods. And I say, command what you want, Lord, but give what you command. Give me a heart that is growing in its love and devotion to you. Give me a heart that is daily 
squeezing out the impurities, the distractions, the pettiness of this world so that I find that your spirit is giving me a heart to love and to worship you. It's in that mindset, because of what God has done for us in Christ, that we turn our attention to the Lord's table. If you have your Bible still open, turn with me briefly to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 31, very last verse of the chapter. Before I read it, let me remind you that earlier in John's gospel, we read in chapter 3 that this is the verdict, or this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds, their works were evil. That is a description of you and I prior to the miraculous saving work of God in Jesus Christ. We were people who loved darkness. We loved our sin. And so it is all the more amazing then that Jesus in the upper room with his disciples having this last supper says in John 14, 31, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. What does the Father command? The Father commands that you love me and me only. The only person who ever did that was Jesus. And precisely because he loved the Father more than his own life, he went and offered up himself in the place of people who did not love God, who did not love the Father. And in doing that, he saves a sin-ridden, cursed people, sets them free, brings them into reconciled relationship with the Father so that we can know and share and experience His love. And He tells us over and over again, and as often as you need to find new life and new strength, rejuvenated, renewed, because your cup is leaky and it pours out the stuff that I give you. Every day you need new mercy and grace. You come and you feed as much and as often as you like. And this is what we're doing at the table here. We're reminding ourselves that what sustains us in our relationship with the Father is not any obedience that we have done but the perfect obedience of Christ. That even though we were unable and even unwilling to love him as we should, the son loved him perfectly and loved him fully and then gave himself on the cross 
to be treated as if he was a God-hater so that we could be treated as someone who loved God perfectly. Men, would you come forward to help distribute the elements? This communion, this taking of the Lord's Supper is for us a sign and a seal 
for those who have entered into faith with Jesus Christ and who have followed him in baptism, signifying the new birth, are also signifying by our participation in this meal that it is not only God in Christ who gives us new life, our initial birth, but it's God in Christ by his spirit who sustains us and who keeps us in this life in which we enjoy. Before we partake, let me just remind you of the beauty of the gospel, the good news. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then he goes on to say, If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. The beauty of the gospel is this, that even though we had no inclination to obey the first of God's commandments, to love him above all else, and even though we loved darkness rather than light, we were his enemies. Christ came and paid the price for enemies, for God-haters, to be reconciled and to be turned into sons and daughters who loved their father. He did that for us. Take and eat. Father, how we thank you that although you could have left us to suffer the consequences that we rightly deserve for not loving you, for not worshiping you, for not devoting ourselves to you, that you sent your son who did love and devote himself to you in ways that we cannot even possibly begin to imagine. And that having done, having loved you and worshiped you perfectly throughout his life here on earth, he gave himself up to be treated and punished as if he were an enemy and a God-hater so that we now could feast here on new life as those who have lived our entire lives as ones who love you and who are devoted to you. We praise you and we thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Men, if you would come up to distribute the cup.
John 14, 31 again. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, we could probably insert in there that I love the Father with all my heart, with all my soul, and with all my strength. I do exactly as the Father commanded me. The Father commanded His Son to pour out His life to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the cup then represents the fact that God, in the person of Jesus Christ, the Eternal Son, not only gave Himself over to be beaten and bruised, but to actually give the fullness of His life so that in His death and resurrection we could find new life. Take and drink. Father, how we thank you that you did not withhold your only son from us. Jesus, we praise you that the demonstration of your wholehearted love and devotion to your Father was shown most clearly in the fact that you gave of yourself completely in your atoning death for us. And we thank you that by that work and by your new life, by your Holy Spirit, we now share in the life that you have always enjoyed with your Heavenly Father from eternity past. We thank you and praise you, and we pray all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. As we close, just before I hand, uh, hand it over to Andy, let me just say, if you're here this morning and for whatever reason you question whether or not the weakness and the impurities of your heart have been paid for by the death of Christ, if you don't know that you have been reconciled to God through repentance and faith in the work of Christ, we'll have... Andy, JT will be down here near the front. You can easily come up and speak with one of them at the conclusion of the service. I'll be at the door. You can give a word to me or let me know that you'd like to talk. But there's no reason for you to leave this place without taking advantage of the free offer of forgiveness and pardon that Jesus offers even to people who have not loved him.